Our sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 137. This is the word of the Lord. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Please join me in prayer. Father, may you direct our hearts and our minds to your word in this moment, in this time that we have. Give us understanding uh, into what your word means. Even more importantly, may we receive it as not just an interesting interesting psalm, but as words that come from the living God, that speak truth, that speak life. May they point our hearts to Jesus in this Advent season. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. I'm going to take a guess that you have probably not heard a Christmas sermon on the text of Psalm 137. Maybe you have not heard a sermon on Psalm 137. I'll tell you what, I read this psalm six months ago and had this thought, I will never preach that because I don't know what to do with it. And here we are. Hallmark does not make cards, Christmas cards, based on this text. Probably for good reason. I don't think we'd want to see that pictured on a card. And I tell you what, if someone gives you a Christmas card that has this as the text, I would encourage you to end that relationship. Maybe leave town, go into the Witness Protection Program, so the question is, why am I preaching on Psalm 137 in the midst of Advent when we're supposed to be celebrating Christmas? And if you remember what I said last week, Advent is broader than just the birth of Jesus. Advent means coming. And so part of it is that we look back to the first coming of Christ when he came and was born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem, but we're also looking forward to Christ's second coming. And there's a, there's a, 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 a theme within Advent of waiting, because we're waiting for the return of our Lord. We're waiting for him to come back. And so in this series, we're examining some of the important features that we experience in that wait. Last week, we looked at the mystery of God's providence, that in God's providence, he's always present to us. He's always at work, though oftentimes in ways that are not obvious. Today, we're going to be looking at the mystery of suffering. For as my, my, my former pastor used to say, we are always either in a season of suffering or we are leaving a season of suffering, or we are about to enter a season of suffering. Living in a world that's broken by sin means that suffering will be part of that world. That's just a guarantee. And we live in a broken world. But the good news for us is that we also live in the presence and the grace of the one who was broken for the world. 
And so suffering may ultimately be a mystery, but it's also always for a purpose. It's always meaningful. So we're going to look at three truths this, to, uh, this morning about the mystery of suffering. First, that suffering helps us remember. Second, that suffering helps us realign. And third, suffering forces us to trust. If you want to follow along with me, as again I read the first four verses in Psalm 137. <clears throat> By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And to get some background on this psalm, it was probably written when Israel was in exile, or at least shortly thereafter. If, if you remember the story, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, after many, many years of faithlessness and rebellion against God, is sent into exile as, as, as punishment. Uh, and, they're, and they're exiled by the nation of Babylon. And so we, it's likely that's when this is being written because of the references to Babylon. And so here is Israel being forced to leave their home in a foreign land, and they write this psalm. It's what's called a communal lament. This was meant to be sung in the congregation. We can see that because they use first-person plural. So it uses we, our, us. It's a song that's meant to be sung by the church, by the people of God. And one of the reasons why this psalm is so memorable is because it begins with this striking contrast, this contrast between the physical beauty of where they are in Babylon and the sorrow in their hearts. They say, by the, by the waters of Babylon... There we wept. In, in the ancient Near East, or sorry, in the Middle East, it's still this way, most of it's desert. It's very hot. The reason why Solomon always said there's nothing new under the sun because the sun dominates that land. And so wherever there is water, that's where there's life. My older brother uh, lived in Saudi Arabia, which is in the Middle East, for a few years. He worked in the Foreign Service. And I remember him telling me this story, but before he moved there, he never wore sunglasses. Um, we, we wear sunglasses you know, maybe this sounds uncomfortable. For most of us, it's an aesthetic thing. Like, we just like wearing sunglasses because we look cool in them. My brother, when he first got there, he went driving in the desert, and he wasn't wearing sunglasses. And the sun is so hot, so strong, it was reflecting off the desert sand, and it burned his, like, his eyeballs. They get permanently damaged his eyesight. He literally has scar tissue on the lenses of his eyes from the reflection of the sun. So we always wear sunglasses. So in a land where that's what it's like, where there is water, well, that's where there's life and vitality. That's where, there's, that's where people are going to live. But it says, by the waters of Babylon, by the place where there's water and comfort and life, there we wept. And on the willows, there we hung up our lyres. You can think of willows. I mean, it's all kinds of poetry of the willow tree. It's a beautiful tree. It, it symbolizes loveliness and pleasant places. And my beloved and I, there we walked among the willows. But here he's hanging up his lyres. like, I'm done singing. I'm in this beautiful land, and I'm weeping, and I don't want to sing anymore. And the reason we're given for this contrast between the beauty of the land they're in and the sorrow of their hearts is verse 4. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's like, yes, the, the world is beautiful around us where we are in this foreign land, but we are far from the presence of the Lord. There's a contrast there. It makes me think of World War II accounts you would read of when the Allies invaded the continent of Europe, and there are times where they are traveling through the countryside of Europe, and they're in these beautiful, I mean, you just think like, you know, 
idyllic countrysides with small villages and there's wildflowers and the birds are singing and they're tramping along and they could almost forget for a moment that they're in the middle of a war until the bombs, bombs started falling and then they remembered. That's what suffering does for us. It's like the bombs falling on us, reminding us of some important realities, waking us up. It reminds us of two important realities. First, suffering helps us remember God. When you read this psalm, Psalm 137, Israel's greatest priority, as they would sing this as a, as a church, as a congregation, their greatest priority is God, the presence of God. We're in this beautiful land. It makes no difference to us because we don't have God with us. And it's interesting is when you look at the history of Israel prior to the exile, prior to Israel experiencing suffering and hardship, Israel's physical well-being as a nation went in the opposite direction of their spiritual well-being. So when they were in Israel, in the centuries leading up to exile, when they were doing well, when they were prospering, when they were doing well politically, they were also tended to spiritual stagnation and then to unfaithfulness. Whereas when things didn't go well for Israel, then they would cry out to the Lord and there would be a new urgency. That's re- the reason for that is there is always a temptation in the human heart to try to substitute created things for the creator. To try to substitute something God has made for God himself. That's just the, the movement of the human heart. And when life is going well, when the things God has made are pleasant to us, then it's easier to do that. But after, but suffering works to loosen our attachment to created things so that we can more fully long for God. Again, before the exile, Israel was satisfied with the goods they had. Like their life was pleasant, it was good, and as a result, they were satisfied with that, even if it meant that they were far from the Lord. Even if it meant that their hearts were not the Lord's, even if it meant that God was not near them, that God was not being honored, they were content with the physical goods that they had, with the pleasantness of their life, with their possessions and their relationships and their homeland. They were content. But again, suffering loosens our attachment to the created things so that we can long more fully for God. And so after the suffering, we get Psalm 137, where once again they find themselves amongst pleasant things, among a good life, but now it's no longer enough. They're no longer content with just a good life if they don't have the Lord. Suffering loosens our attachment to the created things so we can long more for God. For suffering gives us perspective. When we suffer, we begin to see how limited and ultimately unimportant created things are in comparison to God. Grief does this to us, right? We're a consumer culture, a culture that operates on this idea that part of what makes you human is owning things. And so, for instance, a new iPhone comes out and has like the smallest little difference. We're going to go pay $1,500 for it. We'll mortgage our house. We can buy the new iPhone. It's a cool phone. It's great, you know. Or we want to go on vacations. We go on a nice vacation or we buy a new car, buy a new house. These things are really nice. But when we lose someone we love, what's an iPhone? Right? Maybe vacation will help you forget, but then you come back and you're still in your sorrow. What's a new car with a leather interior when you're missing the one you love? Grief and suffering has the ability to show us how limited these things are, that in, the, in, in a real way, they do not have the ability to hold the human heart. They don't have the ability to hold our worship. 
And so when we suffer, it helps loosen our grasp on these things so we begin to long and cling to God more closely. Suffering helps us remember God. But second, suffering helps us remember home. Look at verse four again. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This lament centers around the fact that they're not in Israel. They're not in Jerusalem. This exile was supposed to be temporary, and it was temporary, and they knew that from prophecies. They were not going there to live forever. They would one day return. But again, they're in this very pleasant land where there's plenty of rivers and life and willows. There's, there's, there's comfort, prosperity, and it would have been easy for them to forget this is not, in fact, our home. Suffering reminded them. They might put down roots, right? They might start businesses. They might get married, have kids. But this is not where they're going to stay. This is just temporary. They're going to go home. As Christians, we, we're spiritual exiles. We're not physical exiles. Probably not. But we're spiritual exiles. Our home is with Christ. Our home is the kingdom of God. But we live in a world that's not ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather by, as the Apostle Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. Whereas Jesus himself says, the ruler of this world. And so though Christ is Lord of all in his mysterious providential workings, he's given a certain amount of power to Satan to rule this world. And so while we live in this world, we are also not home. We are spiritual exiles. This world is not our home. And in a pleasant land like America, it's easy to forget that. By and large, in comparison to the other parts of the world, in comparison to history, we live very pleasant lives. We don't have our kids being slaughtered in front of us or probably not starving to death. We live fairly pleasant lives, and so it's easy for us to forget this world is not our home. We're exiles. We're waiting to go home. And suffering, again, helps us remember that, helps us remember, oh, this was never meant to be my home. Suffering helps us remember. That's the first truth we learn from this text. The second truth that we learn is that suffering helps us realign. Look at verses five to six. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I want to set the stage for what this would have been like when they use this in corporate worship again. Verses 1 to 4, it's, it's the we, our, us. It's the congregation saying it together. And then all of a sudden you come to verses 5 and 6, and it's I, my, it's one person. So the dynamic would have been the congregation singing this together loudly, and then all of a sudden everyone cuts out, and there's one voice if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, there's a, a pathos, a, a sobriety, a somberness as that's sung out. And what's being sung in that moment is an oath. An oath that if the people of God, if the psalmist forgets Jerusalem, forgets his homeland, let his right hand no longer work. Let his voice cease to work. A lyre is like a harp, so think of like a guitarist. And if you're a guitarist and musician and you lose the use of your right hand and your voice, you're done. You will no longer be musically involved. When I was in college, I took classical guitar performance, and my um, guitar teacher uh, at one point was kind of an, a, 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 somewhat of a prodigy, 
And he was a kind of an up-and-coming classical guitarist. He went to school for it. He was performing in, in, in more and more well-known venues. And then in his early 20s, he woke up one morning, and he had lost all muscle memory in his index finger. Um, so muscle memory is, you know, musicians can play because they practice again and again, and their, their hands learn certain things. He literally woke up, and he had no muscle memory in his index finger. And when you play classical guitar, you pluck with your thumb, your index, middle, and ring. So all of a sudden, he doesn't have that finger. He said, he told me he could literally, if he focused really hard, he could pluck a steady rhythm. Bung, 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 and that was it. So his career was over. And so instead of playing at Carnegie Hall, he was teaching guitar lessons at Wheaton College. And, you know, my 19-year-old self, I remember him telling me this, I said, well, that's a bummer. And he just looked at me like, yeah. (laughs) It was like devastating for me, you dummy. what the psalmist is saying is, may I lose my profession? May I lose my calling? May I lose what I love most if I forget Jerusalem? And of course, the point there is not hometown pride. The point is Jerusalem is a throne of God. That's where the temple was. It says, look, if I don't place God as my highest joy, if I forget God, I would rather lose everything I hold dearest. May I lose everything that matters to me most if I don't put God as my highest joy. Again, this is what suffering has the power to do to us. Israel was in, in, uh, was in their homeland in prosperity, unfaithful to God. And they go through suffering, and now they're saying, God, take what I love most if I don't keep you as first in my life, if I don't give my highest devotion to you. I'd rather lose what I hold most dear. Suffering helps realign our priorities. I, I just want to reflect on the radical nature of this Oath. Again, it's not just God discipline me if I, sin, if I wander or God discipline me if I sin. He's like, God, take away what I hold most dear if I don't love you above everything else in this world. And I want to make, I want to make an observation. This is based off my 34 years of existence, so take it with what you will. But in my experience, this gets harder and harder to say the older you get. When you're 18, it just seems to be easier to say, God, take everything I hold most dear before I lose you. Just, it's harder to say the older you get, and I think it's for two reasons. One, the older you get, you've actually experienced a little bit of suffering. You've experienced the hard knocks of life. And so you have a sense for what it would be like for God to take away what you hold most dear. And so you're, you're just a little, bit more, a little bit more cautious. God, please don't take away what I hold most dear. But then the second reason, I think, is that you just have more to lose. You have a family you have a career, you have you know, a house. There's just, just more for you to lose. But the tragic irony, though, is that although it gets harder for us to say this, the older we get, if we live long enough, eventually we'll lose most of what we hold dear. We'll lose our family and our siblings and our friends. So how can we live like this? How can we live like this? Oh, God, if, let me lose what I, what I care about most. I would rather lose that than lose my devotion to you than, than to not have you as my highest joy. How do we actually do that? And I'm here to say that you cannot, I cannot, we cannot do that on our own strength. It is not possible. And I tell you what, if we take this passage as just a, a command, a simple imitation, do this, it will crush us because you will try and try and try, and it is not within the human heart to love God in this kind of way. It will crush us. But this is a reminder that the Christian life, it begins by grace through faith, and it continues by grace through faith. 
And so the primary takeaway from verses five to six are not do this, but it's look to Christ. Because Hebrews 12, two says, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus fulfilled this passage. He considered everything, he, he was willing to give up what was most dear to him for the joy of the Father. In fact, he was willing to give up his own life. He lived this out, and so here's the thing. The only way we will be able to live this out in that kind of devotion to God, to say, God, take even what I hold most dear, the only way we can do that is if Christ is living in us. Like, we human, we just, we can't. But Christ living in us can. And the more that we offer our life up to Christ in full surrender, the more that he indwells us, the more that he empowers us, we begin to live as he did. It's by grace through faith that we live like this. So look to Christ. Look to Jesus. And in the mystery of God, Jesus at times uses suffering to help realign our priorities. So again, the second truth is that suffering helps us realign. The third truth that we see from this passage is that suffering forces us to trust. Look at verses 79. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Little background there, Edomites would have been a local nation nearby Israel. They were actually distantly related to Israel and they helped the Babylonians when they overthrew Israel. One commentator comments on this passage like this. He says, Psalm 137 has the distinction of having one of the most beloved opening lines and the most horrifying closing line of any psalm. And it's true. If you read this, the beginning is beautiful. It's sad. It's moving. It's poignant. Then you get to verse 7. You're like, okay. Verse 8, okay. Verse 9, wow, that went south really fast. What did I just read? But I want to give some considerations here. And the first is some cultural considerations. The ancient Hebrews, in the way they used language, were very concrete and specific and gritty and earthy. We speak in abstractions. They would use very physical, concrete examples that makes for beautiful poetry. So for instance, in Psalm 102, the psalmist says this, and just, just, just listen to the, the concrete specificity of this language. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. It's just so much like concrete, gritty, like sometimes disturbing imagery when all he's really saying is, I'm not doing well. <laughs> Like, that's what we say. You know, as, as a pastor, one of the sacred honors and privileges is um, I just, I get to hear more often how people are really doing. And I've yet to hear someone say, my bones are burning like an oven. <laughs> Instead, we'll say, no, I'm not doing very well right now. And the point of Psalm 102 is not that we should take this as a literal medical diagnosis, like, your bones are burning, we'll get some water. How is that even physically possible? The point is, like, you're not doing well. 
And the same thing when we get to Psalm 137. Psalm 137, the point is not a literal, physical carrying out of this act. The point is an emphasis on the, on the anger and the desperation and the sorrow of the community and what they've experienced. That's the point. So that's a, just a cultural consideration. The way the Hebrews use language, it's different. But the second consideration as we read Psalm 137 is it's just helpful to remember that we have not experienced what Israel had experienced up to this point. We've not had our children dashed on rocks in front of our eyes. When I was in seminary, I took a class on Jonah. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, Jonah's a prophet. He's called to preach to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyrians, Israelites hated each other, mortal enemies. So Jonah says, no way, I'm not going. To Jonah, the good news would have been if God brought judgment, he's not going to go preach repentance. As, you know, maybe Nineveh will repent and then God will spare them. No, he wants Nineveh to die. And so we're all you know, in class getting down on Jonah. Like, Jonah, he's no compassion, no empathy. He's probably racist. And then a student who is from Nigeria made this comment that just silenced us all. He said, again, he's from Nigeria. He was probably in his 30s. He said um, in his home country, there was a, a, an Islamic terrorist group that had been active for, for a few decades called Boko Haram. And they had killed hundreds of thousands of people in Nigeria, including over 300,000 children. And they were just known for acts of brutality, kidnapping school children. And, 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 and pretty much everybody in his country knew someone who had been killed by Boko Haram. And so he said in this very like, humble, honest way, he's like, look, if God called someone from my country to preach forgiveness and mercy to Boko Haram, it would be hard. <laughs> and all of us like, you know, in our 20s from suburban America were like, hmm, okay. You know, part of the reason we may struggle with this is that we did not watch our children get dashed on rocks. Just want to be careful as we read this. But again, the point of this passage is not a literal fulfilling of verse 9. The point is it's a cry for justice. It's a cry from the people who, they're saying, God, we want justice. And here's what's important. The psalmist brings his cry to God, and he entrusts it to God. Again, this, this psalm is almost certainly being written while they're in exile. If this psalmist wants to dash little Babylonian children on rocks, he's got opportunities all around him. He's in Babylon. He could have become a terrorist, enacted vindication and justice on his own. Well, that wouldn't be justice, but vengeance anyways. But he doesn't. He entrusts his, his plea, his cry to God. That's what we're supposed to take from this. That like the psalmist, we entrust our suffering and, our, and the injustice we experience, we entrust it to the God who will do right, who will act righteously. We don't take it into our own hands. This is what the godly do. They entrust their angerness and their bitterness and their desperation to God. For in the end, we can't fathom what God will do. We can't fathom how he will bring about righteousness and justice. And so Israel, as they're saying this, as they're crying out for justice, could not fathom that one day God would bring justice to the world by allowing his own son to be dashed on rocks, so to speak. In the end, for Christians, all questions of suffering and injustice lead us to the cross. Our desire for justice, like the psalmist, is we want an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what, that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, look, do to them what they did to us. That's justice. May they hurt like we hurt. And that's what we want. 
And so if we get the justice that we want and the way we want it, well, we go and dash their kids in the rocks. Well, then they return, they dash more of our kids in the rocks, and there's a cycle of violence and hatred and enmity. And that's just, that's, that's how it works. But God's justice led to a cross where the cycle of retributive violence ended forever. No longer do we owe anyone anything, or does anyone owe us anything, because all that has been paid for in the death of Jesus Christ God allowed his son to be dashed on the rocks, so to speak. God's justice leads to the cross where we see the Lord of life intimately acquainted with grief. So that when we bring our grief and our sorrow to him, it's not to one who just knows at a distance, but one who's walked it himself, who understands. When you go through grief or suffering, talking to someone who's experienced it is so helpful, and we come to a Lord who has experienced suffering. God's justice leads to the cross where we see the suffering of God's people redeemed. Jesus died. He suffered and died, but his death was not for nothing. He rose again. And the the Bible says that we also died with Christ. We suffer with Christ. But our suffering is not for nothing because one day we will rise with Christ. Jesus dying on a cross redeems our suffering so that when we experience suffering, and grief, and loss. It's not for nothing. It's us experiencing the death of Christ with him, but we know that one day we will also experience the resurrection, the rising. We will also rise with him. Suffering makes real our dying with Jesus, but it also focuses our eyes on the hope that we will rise again. Vine Street, the suffering that you have experienced, the suffering that you are experienced, Experiencing the suffering that you will experience, it's not for nothing. It's not meaningless. God is using it to draw you closer to him, to drag your eyes off the world and point it to him, who's the only source of, of true joy. And he's using it to draw you to the hope of the resurrection and new life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in this life, as we experience hardship and suffering, both small suffering and great suffering, Lord, may you use it in these ways to help us remember you, to teach us to long for you above anything this world can offer, to help us remember this world is is wonderful and beautiful in many ways, but it is not our home. And it cannot hold the weight of the human heart. It cannot hold the weight of human glory. Only you can. May you use it to realign our priorities that we might want you and love you and be devoted to you above all things. And God, in the times when we're suffering and we're hurting, just hold our hearts. Pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Amen.